I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today Jillian Capana. She is professor of theater at the American University in Cairo and formerly professor of theater at the University of Montana. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Alexander. Happy to be here. Let me ask you about the state of theater amid the pandemic, broadly speaking, both from your perspective as an American, a foreigner in Egypt and in Egypt and across the Arab world. What is your sense of the stage we are at in the potential recovery of this industry, both in America and speaking more globally? It's heartbreaking. I mean, that's a a tough question to lead with. As soon as you mentioned it, my uh, breath kind of went up into my into my chest because it's, uh, it's not, uh, it's not looking very good. I mean, we can adapt, we can be flexible, we can transform this medium of theater somewhat, but, but anyone who has been uh, participated in a theatrical experience or has been a spectator at a, at a theatrical performance knows that there's nothing like that experience of being in a space with uh, actors who are performing and feeling things deeply, the relationship between the live performer and the spectator is essentially what makes theater separate from film and television. It's uh, very difficult to explain to someone who hasn't been a part of it, but if you have, then you you know that feeling. Uh, you know, I, I worked in India for a long time and um, there's, there's this idea of a rasa and a bhava the um, the actors feel the bhava that the emotion and the audience cap, cap catches the rasa which is the flavor the essence so it's this wonderful kind of back and forth and and that has disappeared because we cannot be in spaces with each other so I mean globally speaking it, it's it's really really difficult in Egypt in a very small way, perhaps a little less difficult than it is in North America and Europe right now, only because there is still some theater that's happening. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that's happening. And it's not a lot of theater because essentially theater is not a super dominant uh, cultural form in Egypt in general, but also the, the, the coronavirus, COVID virus, um, it's a little more lax here. Um, and I think there's probably less of the virus here, um, although that's certainly debatable. Um, so it is happening a little bit, but certainly not to the extent. And I don't know when it's going to come back. You know, I, I, I don't know. There's so much debate in the theater community about whether we need to all kind of adapt this beautiful art form to make it possible to perform remotely. And then there are a lot of theater practitioners who are saying, absolutely not. I am waiting. I will not make theater until this is over. So it's a, it's a really difficult dialogue that's happening within the community right now. Do you think that its survival hinges upon tolerance for that adaptability? Hmm. I think it will survive no matter what, because it's such a powerful medium. And also I think of theater in a very, very broad context. 
So we have theatrical experiences that are happening kind of all around us and in small ways. And there certainly can be outdoor theater. There can be smaller audiences. Um, So I I do think no matter what, even, you know, this is going to end, but even if it, if it, even if for some crazy reason, it took a couple more years, theater would eventually bounce back. But um, yeah, I mean, the art form in general, just like any art form, just like any, anything that exists in the world has to adapt and transform mostly because of the needs of the people who are the connoisseurs. And so, yeah, the connoisseurs, the spectators, the the viewers, their needs are changing a little bit. So the art form needs to change a little bit to fit their needs. What are some interventions that you've seen during this pandemic period that you hope will endure and be able to give momentum as the more traditional forms reemerge? You know, I would say from all of the live streamed plays that I've watched and all of the plays that I've watched, which are um, even I've seen multiple Zoom plays, I, I wouldn't say that they work to the extent that, tra- that traditional live theater where the audience is in the space with the performers works. But there is something that's really interesting in terms of the relationship between the actors that's happening. So the re- I feel like the relationship between the actors or the performers and characters and the audience has changed. But oddly enough, the relationship between the individuals who are performing together seems, I don't know if I would say stronger, but certainly different. And part of that is because, you know, when we look at the performer um, in, in a theater space, we're seeing their bo- their body is really enlarged and there's typically a, a set behind them. There's a lot of distractions. Um, but when we're performing in front of the camera, we see the eyes in a way that we do not see on the stage. And what I'm noticing happening with actors is that they're looking at each other and reading each other's eyes and facial expressions to a larger extent. And I think that's actually, I think that's a, that's something to do with the computer, not necessarily the camera. For example, in film and television, you know, you're still you're still far away from the other, so to speak, from the other performers. So there is a space between, but on the with with the computer and with the computer camera or the you know phone camera, I can get so close to the camera lens as a way to need to connect. And I'm finding people want to do that. We're 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 not connecting at all. We're so kind of um, missing those interactions that we always used to have. So we're 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 getting quite close to the lens of the of the instrument and oddly connections are happening in that way. So I hope that when we do do go back that some of that remains intact. The pandemic has also unleashed a newfound commitment to social equity and justice. And that is really the centerpiece of your work and one of the principal objectives of the theater that you undertake and the analysis that you do from 
Montana and the United States to India to um, Cairo now. In, in its current manifestation, uh, how do you think that, that theater can most effectively convey those morals or lessons of social justice that we need to hear as a society? Hmm. Well, I think that in part because of the disconnect that everyone is feeling, um, both to individuals, but also to just general culture, um, I think that we're craving it to, a, to a, more of an extent. So we're seeking it out. We're seeking out difficult topics that might have been avoided when life is a little bit easier. So oddly, because life is hard right now, people are able to have discussions about difficult things in kind of a different way. We're, we're all in this together as well. As cheesy as that sounds, there's not a human being living or there are very few lucky human beings on islands somewhere who have been spared this, but everyone else is experiencing it. And so there's a strange kind of, um, I feel like universal collective um, coming together right now, which is exactly what theater seeks to do, which is exactly what theater for social justice um, seeks to do, to get the minds of the participants, whether those are the performers, designers, audience members, to think deeply and critically about issues that affect us as human beings and affect other people as human beings. So I think it's odd that in this pandemic, we're rather than kind of becoming insular, I mean, we are insular in that we're stuck in our homes, but we're also reaching, we're feeling such a need to reach out. And I wonder if there's in some way this reaching out will maybe bring about um, a deeper understanding and a more empathic understanding of the experiences of other people. I don't know. I mean, for example, we're, we're all looking now about the inequality that's going to happen with the vaccines. And, and we know that this is a socioeconomic issue and that poorer people in poorer countries are going to have less access to this vaccine. And uh, no one's denying that. <laughs> it's undeniable. And people are feeling it and acknowledging it. And so from these feelings and acknowledgements comes critical thinking and then perhaps action, which is exactly what I try to do with theater. Get people to think, get them to feel, and then get them to take action and make a change. What production are you working on presently, either in the virtual mode or in person, uh, contemplating the next production that is going to fuel the kind of equity and community that you just described? Mm. I'm really excited about this, this production. It's called, we're calling it, it's a tent, it's a working title called You Anna Two, uh, basically you and I too. And uh, it's about sexual harassment and sexual assault in Egypt. Um, this has been a subject that I've been interested. I mean, I've done multiple projects in this area, but since I came to Egypt, I, I've been interested in exploring this issue. And then this summer with the Zaki case and all of the harassment and assault that happened with that individual. And then of course the um, Conrad 
uh, hotel scandal and the WhatsApp group, all of the, the horrible things that have come to light that have been happening in Cairo and in Egypt around sexual harassment and sexual assault have sort of made way for a, a better conversation. It can't, it's, it's so grotesque that it cannot be swept under the rug anymore. And, and it has been swept under the rug. It's just been accepted for so long. And finally, because of these awful things that have become public knowledge, it's impossible to deny. So I knew the time was right and ripe to do a project around this. And we're, we're working on this, this play in a hybrid way right now. For example, we held auditions on Zoom, but we held callbacks in person. And we were able to do that because we called back a very few people, very few people at a time. They wore masks and we held callbacks outdoors. That's another aspect of the production. So it will be site specific um, in the, the specific um, environments of the, the settings. They'll be outdoors and they will speak to the very characters and the um, context and themes of the play for of the plays. And there'll be five short plays. Audiences will be in groups of maybe 10 to 15. They'll watch a play and then they'll walk to the next location for the next play. They'll watch that play and then they'll walk to the next location. So in this manner, they'll cycle through all five plays, each addressing a different kind of perspective or aspect of sexual harassment and in locations that will also speak to the issue. So the the way that um, some outdoor locations allow for harassment in different ways, maybe because they hide and conceal things. So, uh, so because the project is outside, we actually are hoping that we can have live audiences. And if we can't, we will tailor it and figure out a way to make it happen via Zoom, uh, which probably won't be as interesting, um, but it will still get the message out there and, and enable people to, um, to perform and to watch and to discuss this topic. Two questions related. What is the limitation of the law right now in terms of protecting those who are victims of sexual assault or any kind of sex crime? And and the second question as it relates to your production specifically is in the climate of Cairo today and Egypt broadly, what limitation do you have on the creative expression in the play because the intent presumably is to stimulate some reform and change to impact the answer to the first question about the condition of law and what is protecting or not protecting victims right now. Great questions. I mean, the, the first thing I would say is that, you know, Egypt is, uh, it's a, it's a censored country. Um, even at a university, every production that we show, we go through the Ministry of Culture Censor Board, and they look at the script, and, and we make changes. And, um, you know, there's, there's certain things that, that the Censor Board has a difficult time with accepting. Sometimes it has to do with politics. Very often it has to do with um, language or... Um, the discussion of sex or sexuality. And so 
with every one of these plays, which by the way, will be original. They're all, they're all um, student and alumni written. So we'll have to submit all of these plays to the censor board and we'll find out and make changes accordingly. So that's one, but that is, it, it's both frustrating and a creative exercise. Because if the censor board's having a difficult time with it, it may follow that audience members might have a difficult time with it. And that's something theater cannot handle. You can't alienate your audience, right? So I kind of look at it like that. It's a, it's a, the censor board is a tip off to what might alienate a spectator. And if you're alienating a spectator, there's, there's no reason to have the play. You're not going, especially a play about a social issue, you're not going to make an impact. So that's one. And then, um, with regard to the law, I mean, the, the, the laws are changing and that, one of the reasons I felt the time was right was because of these, these cases that have recently happened, which have, I think, called upon the culture in general and also the government to think about sexual harassment and sexual assault in somewhat of a different way. Not entirely. I mean, of course, of course, pe people who are victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault are very often become the become viewed as the uh, an instigator sometimes or even a perpetrator or as the problem so it's one of the reasons many women don't come forward I mean you've probably heard the the latest UN survey shows that 99% of Egyptian women have been harassed I mean 99 99% so are admitting this we we could sort of, I will go ahead and draw <laughs> draw a hypothesis from that, that the one person is just also harassed and not saying it. 67% of those women, it's, it's, they're being touched. So it's not just verbal harassment. So it is a huge problem here. And many sectors of the population are very far away from recognizing it as a problem. But Many people, many women and men are now recognizing that this is unacceptable. I think it's going to happen very, very slowly. But I do believe that in five years, there will be some laws that, that will have come out of this tumultuous time. With respect to the censor board, I imagine that it's both topical and vernacular in the sense that uh, they have objections to particular motifs as well as the specific words. Sometimes it is one word and that's, a, that's actually easy to fix. But when it's content or context, that's more difficult to address. As a final question, Professor, uh, we talked before about Rami and the popularization of Egyptian culture from the American lens, increasingly Hulu and other streaming services are available in Egypt. And of course, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook are in various degrees available as well. Uh, that seemed like a rather landmark moment if you think of cultural representation of Egypt in the modern era here in America. What say you about the influence of Rami uh, in America and more importantly, actually how it's perceived in Egypt for those who view it? I, the thing that I love about the show Rami is that it really presents the complexities of a modern 
young person dealing with um, two different cultural norms, but also um, also wanting to be free, but also wanting to um, honor and own a culture that maybe doesn't doesn't view everything as something that should be free. And so I, I love that he's, he's not trying to, the, the performance, the television show isn't trying to um, vilify anyone. It's, it's, uh, it's just trying to present this young person who's constantly trying to struggle with both his own identity coming into manhood and, 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 and be the Egyptian man that he that he wants to be, but also be the kind of the the American guy as well. And I think, you know, we can look at that and say Rami is sort of straddling two cultures, but so many of us are are have this kind of identity bifurcation in a way. It might have not your, be cultural, have, but it's in some way. Have any of your students reflected on it? You know, I don't think that most of them have right now seen it. I think it's it's only been recent that it's been accessible here. I remember last year when I was watching it, telling my students about it, and they hadn't, many of them hadn't heard of it. So, um, but now it is starting to 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 get out there a little bit more. Yeah, but the, I think this, the students that I've talked to love it. I mean, he's also a very charismatic um person and and I think that they relate to him and they relate to this wanting to be young and cool and hip but also um, a good Muslim at the same time those two do not have to be separate and for some reason the West is you know has this this odd uh, take not all of the West but many because most Westerners haven't been to, to the Middle East and so what they understand it to be is is not accurate at all. And Rami, I think, is making strides in, in, in showing the West that th- some of the contradictions that the West experiences are also contradictions that the East experiences. Professor, thank you for your contributions, your artistic and theatrical contributions to the humanitarian causes. And thank you for your insight. Oh, it was great to be here. Thanks, Alexander.